We'll be reading here from John 18, beginning in verse 1, then we'll kind of start setting the stage for the things we want to discuss uh, this evening. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, John 18, verse 1, He went out with His disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So that particular reading will get us started in some of our discussions concerning Judas. We've got three sections here, really four that we can just uh, title. Section number one, you see there on top of your sheet where it says John 13.30, Matthew 26.30. You can call that uh, the betrayer leaving. The betrayer leaving. And then section number two right there beside John 18 verse 1, Matthew uh, 26.36. You can call that section... Uh, the betrayer is coming. The betrayer is coming. And then the third section, John 18, that we just read, John 18, 3 through 11, you can call that the betrayer is here. And then the final section, Matthew 27, 3 through 5, the betrayer is gone. So the betrayer leaving, the betrayer coming, the betrayer is here. And the betrayer is gone. Talking about Judas. You notice how often in John 18, every time his name is mentioned, this is the one who betrayed him. There's not many more ugly things than a traitor. It's the worst sort of hypocrite that's walking upon this earth. I know as we look around us today, we're seeing people do a lot of bad things, but really, it doesn't get any worse than being a traitor. And so we're seeing some of the steps, some of the last steps of Judas uh, this evening. 
Notice the betrayer leaving. Look over with me, please, to John 13. We looked at John 13 a little bit last week. This is the chapter where Jesus washes their feet. This is the time in which um, they are gathering together there in Jerusalem for uh, the observance of the Passover. And Jesus, during that time, will also uh, begin to discuss the Lord's Supper, which will, be, which will be part of His coming kingdom. And also, during this time, Jesus is going to point out again and again that there is one of you who will betray me. And He hands the bread, as we read about last week, uh, to Judas. And He told Judas, that which you're going to do, do quickly. Okay, so we read some of that from John 13, 21 uh, through 30. Notice verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. He went out. He left their company. That's why we call that section the betrayer leaving. He went out. Now, from Matthew's record in Matthew 26 and verse 30, the other disciples, after Judas uh, leaves... The other disciples, along with Jesus, they sing a hymn. They sing a hymn together. And then they head to, uh, across the Kidron Valley, a little ravine, uh, to one of Jesus' favorite spots, uh, the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. But before they head there, they sing uh, together. Jesus knows exactly what Judas is up to. The disciples are a little bit confused, but notice, even so, even though Jesus had complete awareness of what Judas is doing, Jesus knows exactly what is coming his way as far as the, the treachery and the suffering and the cruelty of the cross, yet notice almost how calmly and yet with with enthusiasm, they sing. They sing. There's never a time when it's not time to worship. It's always a good time to worship. Remember Paul and Silas in Acts 16, 24 and 25? They've been beaten, tossed into prison. Their feet and their hands are, are chained to the floor and the wall. And yet at midnight they're singing praises unto God. David, when he lost his child way back in 2 Samuel, he, after he found out the child was gone, then he washed himself and went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. Job, Job 1, 20-22, Job worshipped the Lord. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's always an appropriate time to worship and to honor God, even during times of confusion and chaos, treachery. Uh, Jesus and his disciples sing. Okay. So that's the first session. Second section is, well, the betrayer, he's going to disappear for a while. He goes out into the night. Now, it's nighttime there. It's Thursday evening before the cross as they depart and head toward uh, Gethsemane. 
But really, more, in more than one way, Judas heads into the night. I mean, literally he did, but also kind of in a metaphorical way, he's walking out into the darkness. He's made his decision. He's going to betray the Lord. And now he is walking on a very dark path. And it's not going to end well for him. And so the second part of our uh, worksheet here uh, is from, uh, well... John 18 verse 1 mentions that they are headed to the garden, but uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a more extensive coverage of what happens in that garden. Um, And so we'll look at Matthew's account to kind of give a glimpse of what Jesus is is doing there. Basically, as you know, he goes there to pray. He goes there to pray. Notice um, in Matthew's account, Matthew 26, let's be flipping over there together. Matthew chapter uh, 26. Notice the last verse of this little section of Jesus praying in Gethsemane. He tells his disciples eventually, rise, let us be going. The betrayer is on his way. See that in verse 46, Matthew 26. Judas is on his way. And he, and he is. So that's why we say here, while they're in the garden praying, Judas is out gathering his troops, walking in darkness, and he's on his way. But in the meantime, it's prayer time for Jesus and his disciples. I want to uh, go over with you just really briefly seven things about prayer as we look at Jesus praying in the garden here, seven things about prayer, that really most of these are just reminders, but they're very good. Very good. I want you to notice with me Matthew uh, 26. I'll pick up here in verse 37. Matthew 26, 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Sorrowful and troubled. So the first idea about prayer is that Jesus used prayer to prepare himself emotionally. Prayer can be an emotional preparation. Or another way of saying it it could be an emotional outlet. Say something about the emotions here because Jesus is showing his disciples how emotional this is. Jesus is a human being. He's flesh and blood. He has all the chemistry that we have in our bodies that make up various emotions from time to time. He's being very sorrowful and um, he's, he's grieving. it. He has anguish of heart. Uh, notice that in verse um, 36. He says, I'm sorry, verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38 He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch uh, with me. The best thing to do with our emotions is to take them to God. As Peter says in 1 Peter 5 and 7, Cast all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. No one understands us. No one can possibly have an idea of everything going on within us better than the Lord. 
So every time we have a, an array of emotions that sort of rush in, which sometimes happens, you don't, sometimes you don't plan to have the emotion that you have, but God does expect us to control ourselves, and a great way of doing that is prayer. Prayer, one of the tools he gives us. Jesus knows there's a lot of suffering ahead. How does he prepare himself for that? Prayer. Prayer. The second part about prayer here is, notice the posture in prayer. Not only the the preparation he makes emotionally, but notice his posture in prayer. Notice in verse 39, Matthew 26, going a little farther, he fell on his face. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Fell on his face. I I imagine that many of us have used a lot of different kinds of ways to pray physically, but I don't know how many of us have actually fallen on our face to pray. Pray. Maybe we need to try that. There's more than one time in the Bible that we read about someone falling on their face in praying. But you want to, what, whatever you do in prayer, it's effective to change your stance from whatever you're doing to time of prayer. There's nothing wrong with lifting up your head to the sky and praying. Jesus does that in John 17, 1 and 2. There's nothing wrong with bowing your head between your knees. Nothing wrong with getting down on your knees. Certainly nothing wrong with falling on the ground like Jesus does here. Notice his posture in prayer. Number three, notice the content of his prayer, the words that he actually speaks. And I want to take a moment or two with this and ask you a question. Notice he talks about the cup. What cup is he talking about here? When he says, let this cup pass from me, if, if possible, let this cup pass from me. You see that in verse 39 of Matthew 26. What cup is this? Cross, suffering, sacrifice. He talks about it a lot. Uh, I have this cup. I've got to drink this cup. And so um, it's, it's, it's something that has been on his mind. Go back to Matthew um, 22, I believe it is. And when you get to 22, just keep turning back to chapter 20. A little switching in my mind happened there. I say in 2220 when it should be 2022. But look at 2022. Jesus answers his disciples, You do not what you're asking. What have they been asking? Who's going to sit on your right hand? Lord, grant to us, and even got one of the moms involved there. Grant to us. Grant to my sons they can sit on your right hand in your kingdom. Total misunderstanding of what Jesus had been talking about. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? They said, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my 
Father. But this cup, they would drink some cups of suffering themselves, but Jesus drinking the ultimate cup of suffering. And so if we were doing an extensive search on this, you would look up some passages of how Jesus uh, did suffer for us. Peter talks a lot about that in 1 Peter. Chapter 2, 21, and chapter 3, verse 18, and that kind of thing. Alright? Also notice here Matthew uh, 26, verse 39, uh, some of the other words Jesus uses in his prayer. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Of course, we remember that the parallel passages have similar statements like Luke twenty-two forty-two, Not my will, but yours be done. But Jesus did not wait till the Garden of Gethsemane to talk to people about this ideal. Glance back or glance over to John 6 for a moment. This is one of those real quick looks. But look at John 6 and verse 38. John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This was constantly on the mind of Jesus, of why He's here. And of course, we need to have that imprinted upon our hearts and also include that in our prayers. Telling the Father, which helps to remind us and to, it helps us to embrace it in our lives as we'll pray about it. Yeah, the Lord knows. Of course, He knows why we're here, but we need to talk to Him about it as well. Now, before we leave the content of His prayer, notice He says, if it be possible. If it be possible. And let's do a I want to ask you a question. As I do, the the, the parallel chapters here for this garden scene and the betrayal scene of Judas. You've got Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. But notice, I want to notice something with you from Mark's account in Mark 14, and then ask a question here. Okay. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what, what I will, but what you will. So is there a conflict here, or explain that on one hand Jesus prays, if it be possible, but on the other hand he also prays, all things are possible. So this is your essay question tonight. How, how can you reconcile those two things? Jesus almost in the same breath saying to the Lord, to the Father, all things are possible, but then he comes back with, if it be possible, remove this cup. So who wants to get started on this explanation? Okay, Ken says this shows the depth of God's love because he could have stopped it but didn't. Could have stopped it but didn't. Okay, that's certainly part of uh, this idea. Very good. What else you got to say about it? 
Okay. Sheila's saying, it just could not be stopped this time because of the plan. That's very good. Okay. Of the plan. What, would there be another way to bring redemption to the human family? There's just not another way. And Jesus is kind, of, is kind of showing this to us for the whole world to read all these, all these hundreds of years for us to be reading that He's showing by praying this. He's not showing His doubt, but He's showing us that there is no other way than for Him to go to the cross. All things are possible. That is... All things are possible that does not conflict with the nature of God. But big part of the nature of God is His love for us. His love for fallen humanity. Sinful humanity. Jesus knows very well here that because of the Father's nature and His love for us that He had to go forward this is for our learning, mainly. What else you have to say about this? These two phrases: "If it be possible, yet yeah, all things are possible." Okay. Uh, people ask parallel that: Can God make a rock he can't lift? Sure, he can. But why would he? So the situation is: All things are possible. But why change plans now to come this far? Okay. Well, Mike is saying. Why change plans now since we have come this far? And that may very well be part of what the Lord is thinking. So, good, another good observation there. Nathan's saying the Lord prophesied about this way back before this happened. He promised the Savior was coming. Promised there would be a death and suffering in our behalf, Isaiah 53. And he's not going to not keep his promise. He's going to be faithful to his word. And, and he was. And he is. Okay. Very good. Notice how that Jesus does bring in the phrase, all things are possible. And he does know what he's about to face. So therefore, uh, not only prayer, but trusting the Lord is a key to facing those things which are difficult. Trusting the Lord. Do we believe that he knows what he's doing? Do we believe that, that all things will work together uh, for good uh, through him? Okay, so that's some of the content of his prayer. So first... Notice the emotional aspect of his prayer. Second, notice the posture in his prayer. Third, uh, notice the content of his prayer. Fourth, notice how frequent he prays. How many times does he, does he go and pray here in the garden? Three times. Three times. Matthew 26, 39, number 1. Matthew 26, 42, number 2. And then Matthew twenty six forty four is it? Yes. 
So one, two, three, three times. And then notice the intensity of his prayer brought out by Luke is as Jesus is praying in the garden, what happens to his sweat? Becomes as great drops of blood. Okay. Go ahead, Larry. I'll sum that up in about 10 seconds here. Um, but Larry makes an excellent point that the cup, and he, he does a good job of mingling here both the idea of the cup of suffering and the blood and the intensity of his prayer. And the, what, that what was on Jesus' mind was more than just the next few hours or the next few days. He knew he would rise from the dead. But also what Jesus was losing in coming to the earth. He would always, once he came to the earth, he's always a man, the man Christ Jesus. He, he always will now, since coming and humbling himself uh, to the cross, he will always um, have an identity with man. And that goes on and on. It's forever a, the Son. Yeah, forever the Son. And um, this is a once for all time sacrifice. No more sacrifice after this, and um, it even says over in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul discusses along about 24, 25, 26, talks about at that time when the Son um, delivers the kingdom to the Father, that then the Son himself will be subject unto the Father. Uh, 
kind of retaining that identity of a man forever and ever. So the enormity of the sacrifice cannot be overstated because it is, it is powerful, uh, very much so powerful. Thank you, uh, Brother Larry. I think what we tend to do is to take the example of Jesus and see how it relates to us. But Larry helps us go a little bit further and see what this really involved uh, in regard to Jesus' sacrifice for humanity. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, he was made a little bit lower than the angels. That's right. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. That's good. Okay, so we see the content of his prayer, number 3. The frequency of his prayer, number 4. The intensity of his prayer, number 5. Number 6 is uh, prayer helping overcome temptation. Jesus will come back to his disciples. He tells them to wait right here and pray and they come back and what does he find them doing? Sleeping. Okay. And he says, what, could you not stay awake and pray for one hour? That's what he says. But he tells them, pray that you don't fall into temptation. Jesus knew exactly what was going on here. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but what? Flesh is weak. Knowing that is one thing. Carrying that out in life is another. That's why we need to pray and study and think about how life goes. Think about the desires of the flesh. We are indeed a people of good intentions, but oftentimes the weakness of the flesh still uh, ensnares us and the devil has done his work. So prayer is an effective tool against temptation. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Jesus prayed that, teaches us to pray when he taught us to pray, teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, 9-13. He says, pray like this, lead us not into temptation. It's a lot easier to resist temptation if you're never tempted in the first place. So Lord, help us to stay away from those places. Help us stay away from those people. Help us to stay away from those situations where we know that we're weak. So prayer has effectiveness against temptation. So that's number six. And number seven, have a place to pray. This is big because John 18.2, the disciples knew of the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knew about it because oftentimes this is where Jesus went to pray. Most all people of prayer have a special place. So have that place. And you'll find other similar statements in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about how special the garden was to Jesus. Don't forget the ideal of solitude. Oftentimes I wonder if parents are teaching their children solitude. A lot of parents worry about their children not being around people. They're just all stressed out. My children are not around other people. Well, one part of our teaching of our children is helping them to to have some times of solitude with just them and God. Them, the Bible, and prayer. So we've got to teach our children that find them a place. Find, Find you a place. A place of quiet rest. Just between you and the Lord. And let Him talk to you and you talk to Him. Okay, so those seven things about prayer. Now let's go to John 18, the 
the betrayer is here now. He's, he comes, and let's notice this uh, quickly here. In John 18, verse 3, here comes Judas. He's gotten him a band of soldiers. He got them from the chief priests and, and the elders and the and the uh, the Pharisees. And here he comes, and they've got weapons and lanterns and torches. Isaiah 9, verse 6, calls Jesus what? The prince of... The Prince of Peace. Here they are coming to Jesus to arrest Him as if He was going to resist arrest. As if He was some violent person. They've got weapons. You see how ironic that is? The Prince of Peace, you're coming to, to take Him and you've got weapons. I like what Jesus says in Matthew twenty six fifty five about this. Matthew twenty six fifty five. Yep. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against me like a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in temple teaching. You didn't seize me then. What's going on here? But he's saying to them, My ministry has been one of complete uh, peace physically. Uh, my, he, he tells uh, Pilate over there in, in John 18, he says, I'm a king, but I, I'm not the kind of king you're talking about. My kingdom is not of this world. I've come to bear witness of the truth. That's what Jesus is doing day by day. He's in the temple. Anyone who cares to listen can come. He's not compelling people to come. You can come and listen if you, if you will. But his was a ministry of peace. It's very ironic they would show up with weapons. However, let me ask you this question. Is there anything in the ministry of Jesus that would suggest violence, physical violence? So, what now? Peter did have a sword. Peter did have a sword. Okay, so do what? He cleaned out the temple. Okay, that was some Physical roughness there displayed by the Lord. Did they have that in mind? I totally doubt it. I, I doubt they had that in mind as they come to arrest Jesus with weapons. Well, what do you think? Is there anything in the ministry of Jesus that would suggest that, that he would mount a fight on this night? You can't think of much. They, they would misuse his words. Um, Goes back to his misunderstand their misunderstanding of what kind of king he he is he was what he came to do to capture people's hearts not not to capture people not to conquer lands okay Okay. okay. All right, let's go. Kay's mentioning this part here in John eighteen four through eight. Okay. Not only are they coming to arrest the Prince of Peace, but think about what happens here. He doesn't wait for them to approach him. He goes forward and approaches them and says, "Whom do you seek?" They said, "Jesus of Nazareth." He said, "I am He." And then, as Kay is saying here, they step back. 
and then they fall down to the ground. What's causing this? What do you think? What's causing this stumbling to the ground? They've seen him do miracles, so we're in trouble. What's happening at this moment? Hmm. Well, it wasn't what they expected. It wasn't what they expected. Most, if, if there's a criminal involved, he's probably going to try to run and hide. Okay. Or at least avoid. It'd be in the dark of the night. Maybe he could have escaped through the dark shadows being up there in the garden. Boldness is unusual. Spiritual boldness is unusual. People are not accustomed to seeing that or hearing that. Jesus knew exactly what hour this was. He knew exactly what was to take place. He knew the time frame. He knew it was his time. He stepped forward and he said, let's get this show on the road. So he approaches them. It startled them. And they, they, the force of that evidently caused them uh, to just uh, just lose their way there for a minute or two. That's my bit. I don't know what else to say about that. But it, it, it comes from what he said. It wasn't a pushing match. It wasn't a shoving. You know, nothing physical here. It had to come from what he said and how he said it. Could be. That's a good parallel. Brent mentioning uh, when Christ spoke to uh, Paul there on the road to Damascus, that in that speaking, he fell to the ground. Okay. One thing that's certain here is that Jesus is uh, identifying himself uh, not just as the Son here, but as the Great I Am. Literally what he's saying here is, whom do you seek? They said Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is saying, I am. I am. Uh, the disciples would at least know what he's talking about. Certainly the scribes and Pharisees. He is identifying himself with the very name of the Lord Jehovah uh, in front of Israel. Going back uh, to the Old Testament where uh, in the burning bush, Moses wanted to know... Who am I going to say is sending me? And the I am is sending you. And Jesus, again and again in the Gospel of John, refers to himself as I am. I am the light of the world. I am the uh, resurrection and the life. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the door. Again and again. This is John picking up on that theme again. So here they are. They're not only arresting the Prince of Peace, but they're arrest. How do you arrest God? Is it a possible? Is it possible to arrest God? That's right. Impossible to seize God, except for one thing, and that's His submissiveness. You know, Jesus said in John ten, seventeen and eighteen, "No man takes my life from me." I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it. Again, Jesus himself yielded up the ghost. He, he gave up his spirit when he did die. And so, it, it, it really, 
attest to the fact, again, what Larry was speaking about, the, the greatness of his sacrifice here. This is the great I am giving himself up for humanity. So notice that from John 18, 4 through 8. And remember also here, uh, Matthew 26, 48 to 50, that Judas will identify Jesus how? How? He had somehow worked it out with the soldiers that the one I kiss, this is the one you are to seize. Uh, Many scholars have brought out the fact that this kiss is not a one-time kiss, but evidently it was several kisses. It was several kisses. He continued to kiss him until they seized him. Leaving no doubt about who they were to arrest. Uh, So... Passover time was probably full moon, so they had that light. And then they had their their lanterns, and they had their torches. But then just to make sure, this is how far Judas had gone in the hardness of his heart, just to make sure they got the right one, then he continually impressed upon him the kisses until uh, they seized him. So notice that from Matthew 26, 48 through 30. And then notice, uh, this is important in John 18, uh, 8 and 9. Jesus had earlier said in his prayer, in John 17, verse 12, that he had been able to keep those, talking about the apostles that the Lord had given him, he had been able to keep his disciples except for this one here, the one that would betray him. Um, But other than him, he had been able to keep them. So when, when they come to identify Jesus and to seize him, he says here in John 18, uh, 8 and 9, let these go. Let these go. And, and they did. Let them go. Jesus is speaking up for his, uh, his disciples. He didn't want them to be harmed. This was his sacrifice uh, to make. And then notice here, Peter, in, in John 18, 10, and 11, Peter takes his sword after they seize him. We learn who this man is that loses his ear temporarily. His name is Malchus. Did he cut off his right ear or left ear? Cut off his right ear. So Jesus tells him, put up your sword And he talks again about this cup. Shall I not drink this cup? Now over in Matthew's account, what does Jesus say to Peter after he says, put up the sword? In Matthew's account, um, he said, can I not call how many angels? Twelve legions. Evidently a legion is like 6,000. So he's basically saying, could I not call over 72,000 angels at this time? He could, theoretically. But scripturally, no. Spiritually, no. Notice what's said here. Uh, You flip back to Matthew 26. And uh, verse 54, after Jesus says, Could I not call twelve legions of angels in Matthew 26, 54? 
But he said, how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus was determined that this, the Father's will will be done. That which, as Nathan said earlier, that which has been prophesied, that which has been discussed, will take place. Jesus will go through uh, with this. Why didn't they arrest Peter? You're on the right track. Why didn't they arrest Jesus? I mean, why didn't they arrest Peter? Right. How would they prove anything? How would they prove Peter did anything? Jesus healed the man's ear there instantly. Always wondered what Malchus's attitude would would be after he got healed. How could he not be impressed? The final section of our discussion here is, of course, Matthew 27. We referred to it last week a little bit when Judas comes back to the chief priest, seeing Jesus is condemned, and says, "I have sinned." I have sinned. Can you think of other people in the Bible who have said this? David said, after his confession of the Bathsheba's and Uriah sins in Psalm 51, David said it. Was David sincere when he said it? I think so. Did King Saul say this as well? I'm trying to, I think he did. Do you have that memory yourself? Yes, yes. First Samuel fifteen, verse twenty-four. After Samuel said, "You know, you spared." flock here, you spared the king, and then Saul will say, I have sinned, I have sinned. comes a point in life where all of us must have the courage to say that more than one time, because we do sin. We must have the humility to say it, but we've got to mean it when we say it. I'm not so sure King Saul meant it, but I'm pretty sure King David meant it when he said it. Not so sure what Judas's state of mind was when he says it here. I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood, is what Judas said. It's amazing how many different people witnessed in their own words that Jesus is innocent. Not just the guilty man here, Judas, but also Pilate and Pilate's wife. Peter will say. Paul will say, and Jesus himself will say, God will speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. How many different ones witness by their words how Jesus is the Son, He is the innocent.
1. Okay, let's take a break now and get ready for our devotion. Appreciate you working through these scriptures. We didn't get to everything that could be discussed, but you get the idea of some of the last steps that Judas uh, took and the lessons that can be learned uh, from that.